0: Luke, chapter 11. Thanks so much, Margaret, for being here on a song service night, no less. Put you to work. Luke 11:14 through 28 This is God's holy word. Let us give our attention to it. Luke 11:14 Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, "By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons." Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges." But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The grass withers the flower fades god's word endures forever amen well, have you ever been falsely accused of something if you're ever falsely accused of something perhaps it uh, your pride may well up within you and it may in some sense feel good to fight back against that false accusation with reason and logic, and even giving the people who accuse you a little bit of a taste of their own medicine. If you think about it, that's really what Jesus does here. Jesus is falsely accused of something, but he he does not stand up for himself or his name, obviously out of any sinful place. We know that our Savior is perfect and perfectly righteous, I think that one of the reasons he stands up for himself here is because he stands up vindicating his own name because he is a representative of all of those who would believe in him. And so his name and who he is and making sure that we understand he is perfectly righteous, perfectly obeying the will of the Father is important not just for the glory of his own name. It's important for all those who trust in him, who put their faith in him. And Jesus reminds us of the central importance of faith and trusting in him in this passage. He also reminds us, which is providential according to this morning's service, he also reminds us of the importance of relying upon hearing God's word and receiving it as the authority in our lives. We begin in verse 14. Although the miracle that Jesus performs doesn't remain at the center of the story, it provides the occasion for a few different responses from the crowd and, uh, and also gives occasion for the teaching of Jesus as well. We should at least note that this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus heals a mute person. We read, uh, when we read scripture, it's this kind of reversal that we expect prophets of God to do. To open the eyes of the blind, to open the ears that are deaf, to loosen tongues that are tied down. So in that way, Jesus is represented to us here as a true prophet of God. And that comes, of course, as no surprise. These are the kinds of things that Luke is constantly uh, reminding us of in his gospel. Jesus is a true Prophet. It's also pointing out the nature of Jesus' work. He is the one who, as he goes through uh, the country and proclaims the new creation reign of God from town to town, he brings effects of the new creation uh, with him. And the effects are that he is able to reverse brokenness and decay all the things that are associated with the present darkness in this world. So just like, after, Zech- just like uh, after John was born and Zechariah's tongue is loosened, this man is made able to speak. We might ask, what that means for this man? Does it tell us about his salvation? Well, one of the things that we see in this account is that although Jesus heals him, A physical healing is not always going to be good enough, and it's not good enough to seal this man and his fate forever. That's why Jesus comes back around at the end of this passage and is talking about demons going out from a man and then coming back to him. And so that's a theme we must consider in this passage. Why is it that the man, that Jesus heals, right here at the beginning, why is he not recorded as giving praise to God? This is what Zechariah does in Luke chapter 1. Gives praise to God when his tongue is loosened. It's what other people do when Jesus Jesus heals them. It's somewhat customary in the Gospel of Luke for someone to be healed and then they give praise to God. For instance, a crippled man in chapter 5, a few chapters ago when we looked at that. But this man does not do that. What is the lesson here? The lesson is that true understanding of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he does, true understanding of that always results in giving praise to God. It always results in doxology, worshiping him, giving praise to to him. People consider the Christian life, they hear about it, perhaps if they are non-believers, they hear the message of salvation by grace, they think that it's some kind of a cop-out message. It's all that it is, is a punch card or fire insurance. But that's a, an extremely shallow view of salvation, particularly as it accords with God's word. The biblical salvation and true new life is always accompanied by glorifying God with the realization that you have been given this knowledge of eternal life and the accompanying reality of eternal life. So this man does not do that. This man that Jesus heals, it's curious, and as we will see, it is sad. But the man is not the center of this story, the man who is healed. It is the crowd. There are three different reactions from the crowd. The first is there's a group who is amazed. It's a common enough theme in Luke, so it does not take us by surprise. Jesus doing uh, many miraculous things, and this is a powerful sign. And We've seen Jesus do powerful signs, and this is not something that people would see every day. It's what we read next that really ought to catch our attention. Up to this point in Luke, we, we've seen uh, religious leaders who give opposition to Jesus, but now we're starting to see large, large segments of the crowds Who uh, demand more from Jesus, who oppose Jesus in different ways, and perhaps who react negatively to Jesus' teaching. The opposition, in other words, is growing. And and this is sort of this, this rhythm that's going to start cycling over and over as we get closer to the cross. The opposition to Jesus is going to grow more and more. Luke is progressing in that way. There are two negative reactions from the crowd or two segments in the crowd that react negatively. The first is the accusation which we read in verse 15. It is by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he casts out demons. Beelzebul was the name of a pagan god, but in the time in between the Old and the New Testaments, this name had become synonymous with Satan, the devil. The devil. Thus, the accusation from this part of the crowd is clear. They're they're accusing Jesus of being a minister of the evil one, performing signs of the dark arts and witchcraft. This is a very serious accusation, and it's a strange one as well. And Jesus shows that their accusation is both uh, illogical and inconsistent. We'll look at that in just a few moments. But the second negative negative reaction from the crowd is those who seek to test him by asking for a sign from heaven. A couple things we should notice about this second group that rises up to test Jesus. The first is that they demand a sign right as a sign is given to them. Apparently the sign that leaves others amazed is not good enough for them. This reminds us that for many people, they want the sign that they think is the right one. And in those cases, almost nothing is never enough. You may talk to someone and you would say, what will it take for you to believe in God? What will it take for you to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord or that his word is true? They may respond, I want him to show up here tonight And prove to me with my eyes that he exists. I've actually listened to debates where someone arguing for the non-existence of God will actually say that. I challenge, you know, they say, I challenge tonight the Lord to show up and to show that he actually exists. Then I'll believe. Then I'll have faith. Well, the problem is that that's not faith, is it? That's not faith. The Bible tells us that there will come a time when God and Jesus Christ will show up. And will show to everyone and prove to everyone far and wide from one end of the earth to the other that he exists. But by that time, for those who have rejected, it will be too late. Another thing we ought to notice is that there's a touch of irony with how the account is presented to us. Those who demand a sign from Jesus, they test him. We've seen this a couple times in Luke. This is a curious word. And when this word shows up in Luke, what we're supposed to remember, we're supposed to be reminded of when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He is the one who tells Jesus to throw himself down, remember. And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan was the one who wanted to put God to the test. He was the one who wanted to put Jesus to So there's a great irony here in this passage. A part of the crowd accuses Jesus by operating by Satan's power and for the good of Satan's kingdom. And those who demand a sign actually are the ones who are aligning themselves with Satan by demanding or by testing Jesus through demanding a sign. This idea of testing the, the Lord is one that we ought to consider in our own lives. In the program for Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, they help people with their 12-step program. They try to keep their uh, programs free of specific religious teaching. It's not a, a Christian curriculum, but one thing that they stress to everyone in their program right from the start is this. You need to believe in something bigger than yourself. Something bigger than yourself. It can be God it can be whatever you like. You just need to believe in something bigger than yourself. Why do they stress that to people that go through their program? Because so many people who see their lives spiral out of control because of one of these substances tend to get to that place by thinking that the world is theirs, by thinking that there is nothing bigger than they are. By thinking that tomorrow and the next day and the next day are all guaranteed. You can make of this life what you want. You can make of this world what you want. There's nothing bigger than you. Your life belongs to you and no one else. So in these programs they push the idea of believing in something bigger than you in order to humble you. So that you begin to understand that life is a gift. Life is not a right This world is not yours. and You can't control all the things around you, especially when you are enslaved to a controlling substance. Why do I use that illustration? Because so many people who have this posture of testing God act like they are going to be the ones who are the arbiters of the truth. Let God show me what he thinks about himself or what he reveals about himself and I will be the one that stands over all of that evidence and I will decide... Whether or not it is true, they stand as judge over the evidence. And they will decide with their seemingly perfect judgment what is right or wrong or true or false. Luke is showing us the folly of that thinking. A follower of Jesus receives his teaching and his words and his signs as the truth not after they deliberate on whether or not they like it, not after they think about whether or not it accords with all of the other ways that they conceive of the world. When God speaks, that's it. This is why we always spend time opening up God's word and seeing what he has for us there. So Jesus responds to the accusations made against him in the shadow of this irony that these people have aligned themselves with Satan being like him in testing the Lord. And this direct response to the demand for a sign will not come until the next passage. So in the rest of this passage he responds to the accusation that he casts out demons by the power of the devil. Doing his work rather than God's. Jesus' response is based on simple logic. He says something like this. When I drive out demons, I am acting to the detriment of the domain of darkness. I am damaging Satan's kingdom. How could it be then that I would be helping that kingdom, the kingdom of the evil one? Jesus is using an image here of civil war. If you've ever seen the statistics for military deaths of U.S. soldiers you will see this exact idea represented. This country has fought in wars that have been bigger in scale than the Civil War, but the deaths from the Civil War alone roughly equal all of the U.S. military deaths from all of the wars from the next 100 years all put together. It's not until you get into the Vietnam War's totals that you you equal the 625,000 Soldiers in the United States who died in the civil war fighting on the North and the South. The scale of destruction exponentially increases during times of civil war. There is no victory. Because every victory is also a defeat. Every death is a casualty. Everyone that you injure is one ultimately of your own. So Jesus uses this. And he says, I'm damaging the kingdom of Satan. How can I be helping it? In verse 19, Jesus shows that their thinking is not only illogical, but it is inconsistent. People have struggled to determine what Jesus means in verse 19. It says, Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. The question is, what does Jesus mean by his followers? Really two possibilities. He either means his own disciples or he means other uh, Jews who were exorcists, who would exercise demons around the same time uh, that Jesus would have been doing this in the first century. If Jesus is talking about his own disciples, essentially he would be saying this. So are you going to now say that my followers, uh, th- these men who are Jews as well, they cast out demons by Satan's power too? That perhaps may have communicated Jesus' point sufficiently, but if Jesus is referring to, by using followers, if Jesus is referring to other Jewish exorcists, it gets his point across with more force. And the word used there is actually not followers, it is simply the word sons. These exorcists were the ones doing similar things to what Jesus did as far as casting out Demons. We may have all kinds of things that pop up in our head uh, regarding that, but it's important to at least know that. And these Jewish exorcists would have been revered for this kind of work. So Jesus turns it around uh, and tells his accusers to consider it in light of them. These Jewish men who would have been revered for the kind of work they were doing. Do they cast out demons by Satan's power? Do they also operate with the dark arts? That never would have been suggested, and uh, those men never would have been accused. So Jesus shows how absurd their accusation is. It's their willingness to accept these other Jewish exorcists that disallows them from assuming that someone who does similar work is uh, is himself operating on behalf of Satan and by Satan's power. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, many of us feel like there are unanswered questions in this passage. What are we to think about these exorcists that Jesus refers to? Are they good or bad? What are we to think about people that have this power? But to this, I think it's important to rest on the wisdom of God and know that that's not the primary purpose of this passage Certainly there are spiritual things present in the world, things that we don't always fully understand. But we must also notice that even when the apostles set out to write the clearest of the New Testament teaching in the epistles, there's never a program laid out for us that says, okay, this is how you recognize when someone is possessed by a demon. And here is the step-by-step process for what you do in that situation. What we do know is that we have been given a power which is sufficient to battle in these spiritual uh, times of of great struggle. We have been given the name of Jesus Christ, the victorious name of Jesus Christ. We have been given his spirit, uh, the, the, the personal third person of the Trinity, to indwell us with the power of Jesus Christ and his resurrection power, to speak above and beyond these kinds of spiritual oppression. It's the name of Christ, the power of the spirit, which allows the perfect rule of God to reign in our hearts, in the church, we have been given sufficient power from on high, and we need to trust in that and in the wisdom of God. But it's in, it's in verse 20, and Jesus proclaims not only an, uh, an important truth, but he further condemns the thoughts of those who would accuse him. We read, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Now, of course, right away we recognize that Jesus is asserting He's doing all of this by the will of his heavenly Father. But there's that particular phrase that catches our eye, the finger of God. It's something that we don't read very often, so we think probably Jesus is pointing out something specific here. We find this phrase, the finger of God, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Exodus. And it is in uh, the, the third plague we find in the book of Exodus, the plague of gnats, where we see this phrase pop up. In the book of Exodus, one of the struggles is between Israel's God, Yahweh, and the God of the Egyptian magicians. Oftentimes when there are these signs that Moses or Aaron will do, and the magicians who are in Pharaoh's court are able to do something similar, and so Pharaoh scoffs at Moses and Aaron. Why should I take you seriously? Why should I believe you? My magicians are doing something just as impressive. But in chapter 8 of the book of Exodus. There is this moment where Aaron strikes the dust of the earth and gnats cover all of the land of Egypt, every man and beast. It says, even the dust of the earth becomes gnats. To this plague, the the Egyptian magicians have no answer. And they say, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. What do we learn from this? As we said already Uh, That Jesus has been sent to do the will of the Father. And he has been sent only to do those things which God has shown him, which his Father has shown him. But what else do we learn? Two things in particular. The first is the reminder that just as God has led his people out of Egypt by his own power, so now Jesus, as the new and better Moses, is leading his people out of their bondage to sin. He is the champion of the new exodus. It's one of the things that he asserts about himself back in chapter 9. He leads his people out of their bondage to sin. This is a new exodus. It also teaches us something else, which is quite significant. Because who is the person in the story of the exodus who, uh, no matter what sign is given to him, he always ends up uh, with a hard heart. He always ends up not doing what God has commanded him to do, He is the one who always, no matter what is put right in front of him, he will always oppose God. It's Pharaoh. It's Pharaoh. And if we bring that into this account with Jesus, how does that relate with what Jesus says here? Well, who is it that remains defiant and hard-hearted in the, in the face of the signs that Jesus gives? It's those in the crowd who accuse him of being of operating by the power of Satan. In other words, these people who are accusing Jesus are even more lost than the magicians in Egypt. Even the magicians in Egypt were able to say that this is by the finger of God that these things are happening. These people who accuse Jesus are lost to the point of being like Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is perhaps the prototypical enemy of God. And this returns us to The point of the importance of not thinking that we have some kind of authority over what God says, not thinking that we are the arbiter of truth. The futility in the thinking of these folks in the crowd reminds us that there are things that are bigger than ourselves, powers over which we can operate, uh, we exercise no authority. Perhaps we come at life thinking that it's most important knowing what we are going to do with Jesus. But it's more important knowing and figuring out what it is that God and Jesus are going to do with us. It points also to the folly that's found in rejecting Jesus. Jesus points this out at the end of verse 23. He who is not with me is against me. There's no middle road when it comes to the Savior. The absolute importance of putting your trust in him, of looking to him for all that you need. This brings us to the allegory that Jesus tells us in verses 21 and And 22, the images of a house that is well protected and fortified, a strong man. What Jesus means here is that Satan is the strong man. The house is his kingdom, fortified, well protected, a kingdom of sin and death and destruction. And even though Satan is the strong man, there is a stronger man. And Jesus is describing himself with that picture. He comes to raid the kingdom of Satan, to conquer him and to take his property. This describes partially what happens when Jesus exercises demons. Right? He is taking back territory that has been claimed by the kingdom of Satan. Property, which includes persons who were held captive by these dark forces. We learn a couple of things from this. So one of the things we learn is that as Jesus goes from town to town, he is taking back territory. His kingdom is advancing. It is a story of movement. The other gospel writers and accounts similar to this give the image of Jesus going into the house of the strong man and binding him. Binding the strong man, not allowing him to move. And that speaks to the power of the kingdom and the ministry of Jesus. It has, in in that sense, from Jesus coming to earth and his ministry, his life and his death, he has bound the power of Satan because the gospel is now going throughout all of the earth and it's giving freedom to all those who believe in the name of Jesus. The power of Christ is real and active in the world. We need to be reminded of that each and every day. The kingdom of God continues to Advance. Just think of how the, the devil has not been able to stop the advance of the gospel in the world. There you had this, this strong concentration of those who confessed and believed in the true God of scripture uh, in, the, in the promised land in the Old Testament and then scattered and dispersed, but it was a smaller group. It was a smaller group and Satan has not been able to stop the advancement of the gospel in the world, how it shaped the Mediterranean world and then Africa, particularly North Africa and Europe and had such a large uh, part of the establishment of the new world. All the while, human sin sprinkled in there and, and, and mistakes all throughout the way but Satan could not stop the advancement of the gospel. Do you think that he is happy with that? Don't you think that he preferred when those places were kept in darkness. Of course he did, but the stronger man has come and has bound him, and there is not much that he can do. But the final point brings us back to what we said earlier about uh, there not being any middle ground with Jesus. We return to this first man that was healed and who did not glorify God, or he is not recorded as having done so once he was released by the power of the demon. And Luke does not have that customary pronouncement. He went around glorifying and praising God. As Jesus speaks in verse 23 about the necessity of recognizing who he is and submitting to his message and the authority of his message, he moves into this strange kind of parable. The spirit who is expelled from a man goes wandering about, eventually returns whence he came with more powers accompanying it And Jesus' point here is, is again, that it's not sufficient to have dark powers vacate the premises of your life. That's not good enough, because your territory, that will be claimed by one kingdom or another, one of the strong man or the stronger man. This flies in the face of what so many people think about their life. Everything is neutral. You can kind of go in the middle road and sort of take what you want from over here and what you like from over there. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. I can be all that I want to be. And Jesus is reminding us that forces are always bigger than you. You are territory that can be claimed to be part of one kingdom or another. And if you want to be part of the kingdom of the stronger man, you need to have faith in Christ, You need to trust in him. Luke's description of those who have faith are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You know, that comes even from the parable of the sower. Hearing the word of God and keeping it. Just as we heard this morning, the word of God, it's so central to our lives. This is why the word of God is central in what we do in worship. The most important question we must ask ourselves Week after week, are we hearing and receiving God's word as our rule of faith? Are we seeking to obey it for the glory of God? This is more important even than the family of our birth. As Reformed people, we believe that the promise is for believers and for their children. But that is because we see the deeper spiritual realities operating in and through the family, which bring about this greater reality. The promise given to family, God working through families, and that is this, that in the church and in the family, we can be brought up to be those who hear the word of God and do it. We see God working mysteriously and wonderfully through the family, that God's blessing is upon families, and that's one of his primary places of operation. But it's unto this greater reality that the family would be a catalyst for those, for, for, for seeing those who are brought up to hear the word of God and to do it. But there's also this wonderfully good news that even for those who don't have the blessing of knowing a God-fearing family, who do not have that stability, Jesus shows us here the great blessing of being able to, even for those people, they can hear the word of God, they can trust in Christ, they can believe it, and they can be brought into the family of God. So... Young and old, have you heard and received the word today? Are you seeking to not only hear it, but to keep it? As our Lord says, let us seek that, let us seek to obey it. Amen. Father, we pray that this word would sink down deep in our hearts, that you would show us exactly what you mean by it, that the spirit would illumine our hearts unto its meaning. Father, in this week, would you keep us, keep us safe, Keep us close to you, always wanting to honor you, and always seeking your glory in our lives. And it's in Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Amen.